Good evening and uh, welcome to Refuge again. Uh, my name is Nicole and I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Um, anybody else feeling really stressed because they have to preach tonight or <laughs> that's just unique to me? Cool. Um, this week we're going to just dive right in and we're starting uh, our series that we're calling Emails from Paul. This is, a, this is one of the series we're doing over um, this summer. And last week, Brian introduced us to Paul. Tonight, I'm going to dive into one of his letters. But last week, uh, Brian talked about who Paul was. Uh, some of us knew him, knew him, some of us didn't, some of us like him, some of us don't. Some of them are going to have like really deep conversations at the Starbucks in heaven with him. Um, mainly me. Be like, dude, what's your problem with women? Um, <laughs> Uh, but last week, Brian talked about his deconstruction, how he went from a persecuting Pharisee to an apostle of Jesus Christ. And deconstruction, um, it's a word that I use a lot uh, when I preach. I talk about the process of deconstruction. Um, but uh, this week, through some conversation, I realized that maybe not all of us know what deconstruction means. Um, and when you want to know what something means, you go to dictionary.com. Yeah, or Webster, whatever you prefer. Um, but uh, de deconstruction is defined as the act of breaking something down into separate parts in order to understand its meaning, especially when this is different from how it was previously understood. A definition that I really like when you're talking in terms of deconstructing your faith. It is a detailed examination of a text in order to show that there is no fixed meaning, but it can be understood in different ways by each reader. And for some of us, that might make us squirm and make us feel like, oh, that's a slippery slope. We are all interpreting scriptures in our own way. But I like to use this example when I talk about deconstruction is um, HGTV is on a lot at the outpatient center that I work in. I don't know. I think it just makes more people feel comfortable when they're getting nerve tests done. I don't know, but it's on a lot. Um, and uh, there's something comforting about Chip and Joanna Gaines. I don't know. And there's really more renovation shows than I, I knew was out there. Every time I look up, it's new faces. If it's the Property Brothers or Love It or List It or Chip and Joanna. Um, but what they do, what all, they all have one thing in common is they all uh, renovate houses. They go in to a home and they gut it. They remove stuff. They take out some of the old stuff, dangerous stuff, broken stuff, stuff that's harmful. But the thing is, is that they don't leave it in disrepair. They don't leave a house or a room unconstructed in every, any way. They renovate it. Some argue they make it better, but some of those things, I'm like, I don't think I could live there, but whatever. It's too white for me. I cannot put on a white t-shirt tonight, and I was like, nope, I'm going to spill coffee on it, and it's going to be on the internet forever. But the beauty of the, these homes are in the eye of the beholder. They renovate them, they fix them up, and then they show them to the people who they were designed for. The beauty in that art of that home, of that room, is interpreted differently for each house, each room, and each family. They deconstruct, they renovate, and they rebuild, but they don't leave it unconstructed. And here at Refuge, we don't leave anything unconstructed. Refuge is a safe place to restore, to rebuild, and reconstruct your faith in Jesus. And if you drive around Fort Myers at all, you know construction happens at its own pace. So whatever, whatever stage of that process you are in, construction takes time. 
Now that we know a little bit about who Paul is, a little bit about his journey and about his encounter with the risen Jesus, we're going to look at his letters. For the next four or five weeks, David and I are going to be taking on an epistle from Paul. And when I started this, I was like, this is going to be super easy. Like, these are great books. And then I sat down to preach up from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. That's 32 chapters in total. And I was like, I'm never going to be able to do this. I quit. I don't want to do it. So tonight I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians. Some of the homework that I've designed for you is going to look at some of the text from 2 Corinthians. But tonight we're going to focus in on, uh, like I said, 1 Corinthians. And we're looking at the why, the what, and the what now of Paul's letters to the churches. I like the point Brian made last week is that when we're reading these letters and we're reading the epistles is that we're, uh, we're reading somebody's correspondence, but we're only getting half of the conversation, a one-sided response, a reply all, as Brian called it last week. And there are actually clues in 1 Corinthians that tell us that the Corinthians wrote a letter to Paul and Paul is now responding. And I'm sure I could, I would bet money that this church did not want their letters read by anyone, much less be put into canon for centuries on centuries on centuries to be broadcast to the world. As we start to dive into uh, 1 Corinthians, and even any letter we dive into in the coming weeks, I'd, I'd like you to keep some things in mind as we walk through them. One, Paul was not out to write a timeless truth. When he sat down to write this letter, he, wasn't, he didn't have forethought that it would be in the canon of Scripture, and he wasn't even trying to write a theological essay. I don't think Paul sat down at his desk with his quill and his scroll and say, man, in 2,000 years, this is really going to slap. <laughs> Paul was giving direct pastoral instructions to one community— that's faced a specific set of problems in the middle of the first century. This letter is not written to refuge. It's not even written to the United States. It's not even written to people within the 21st century. So mine and David's efforts are to create an overlap from 2,000 years ago to now, the why it was written, what Paul is trying to say, and what does it mean for me right now? What does it mean for refuge in the year 2023? Before we dive into the letter, let's talk a little bit about the city of Corinth. It was a prosperous and bustling commercial, commercial city in Greece. They were a port city, so they had ships in and out. They were making money. There was lots of work there. And because of its location and because of all the commerce that was in and out, there was a lot of cultural diversity, people from all sorts of backgrounds, Greeks, Romans, Jews, Gentiles, pagans, refugees. This melting pot brought in a lot of different religious beliefs, philosophies, and religious practices. Corinth was a city that was centered around idol worship. So there were temples built to honor different gods. There was a pagan community, a Jewish community, a Gentile community, a Christian community. It was an epicenter for culture and diversity of its time, for wealth and knowledge and education. But 
It was also infamous for immorality and lawlessness. Just all hell breaking loose in the city of Corinth. It had a reputation for sexual promiscuity, prostitution, and loose moral values. I don't know about you, but it sounds like I'm describing Miami, Florida. (laughs) If you're from Miami, I'm so sorry if I offended you. Not that you're from Miami. uh, Paul actually travels to Corinth, and we get a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 18. He was there for about a year and a half, um, and he planted this church that he's writing to. um, And while he's writing this letter, the church is still in its infancy. It's only about four to five years old. And because it is so new, because it's not very old, this letter primarily deals with the behavior of the church, the behavior of the Corinthian Christians. And so its central theme can often be overlooked. Brian and David and I actually talked about how the central theme of most of the epistles often gets overlooked because some of them are so focused in on behavior. But from the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, from chapter 1, we see Paul interpret everything in the light of Jesus, in the light of the testimony of Christ. Paul's gospel is fundamentally the story of Jesus crucified and raised from the dead. Paul insists that the identity of this community be shaped by the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the true meaning of love that is exemplified through Jesus and his sacrifice. 1 Corinthians 1 through 9, we get Paul's standard recipe. He greets the church, he thanks the church, and then verse 10, he's like, all right, sit down, shut up, listen up. He hits them with the fundamental theme that underlines 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And we kind of get into the why he's writing. He says, for some, mem- for some members of Chloe's house have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the good news, and not with clever speech, for this is the theme that underlines all of this book. The cross of Christ would lose its power. That is the theme of this book, is the cross of Christ. See, there are immature conflicts and arguments that are brewing among the Corinthian Christians. Some of them are rallying around preachers and leaders and their names and their influences and their ideology. And for me, it's even interesting that Paul would disapprove of people saying, I follow only Christ or I belong to only Christ. Because like, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Like, isn't that who we're supposed to be following? Isn't that who we belong to? But if you look at context, and context is very important when you're talking about deconstructing and renovating and rebuilding your faith. Because in the context that Paul says this, it's obviously causing disunity and division. Paul says, was Jesus divided into factions? So this tells us, and from the context that we're given, that this 
This isn't about being a Christian. This is a boastful claim saying we are the ones who really belong to Christ, not you. Viewing Jesus this way, viewing our faith this way is exclusive. And when you view it this way and you view it through the lens of exclusivity, you negate the sacrifice Jesus made for all people. So petty rivalries and disagreements look silly in the light of Jesus. It look, they look ridiculous when you view them through the truth of his love, his life, and his sacrifice. So what now? I'm sure you're all sitting here thinking, Nicole, we're not exclusive. Safe place, all people. You say it wrong every week, you know. <laughs> but I don't think Paul is necessarily telling the Corinthians to stop disagreeing, but rather pointing to Jesus as the foundation and the source of unity. I believe that there can be disagreement within unity. Brian, David, and I, we disagree on certain things, but we still have unity on the foundation because our, as teachers, our foundation is on Jesus. Ephesians 4 verses 3 through 4 says, Make every effort to keep yourselves united in spirit, binding yourselves together with peace, for there is one body, one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. We are to be a people defined by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, as one church. Any attempt for refuge to define ourselves on any other terms, whether it be on names of leaders or pastors that we really like or doctrines or good causes or theological preferences, we but, but that all promotes division. We cannot make any other church align with our belief system or our worldview or our values. But we must not further perpetuate the division that fragments denominations because Paul's appeal is for unity in Christ. Our purpose at Refuge is not to make sure everyone agrees with us, but build a foundation on Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3.10, Paul says, Because God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, other build, now others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any other foundation other than the one we already have, which is Jesus Christ. It all will come back to Jesus. He goes on in chapter 5 and he says, I can hardly believe the report about sexual immorality going on among you. Again, we get a glimpse into the why Paul is writing this letter. He's been, giving informa he's been given information probably by some narcs trying to earn some favor. You know, probably firstborns. You know how they are. <laughs> Corinth had a reputation for indulgence and immorality. Think raunchy stereotypes of like port cities and sailors. Like that was the kind of uh, vibe that was going on in Corinth. And um, having temples to so many different gods played a significant role in shaping the sexual conduct of the city. There was a temple to Aphrodite. She was a goddess of love and fertility. So this was a place where temple prostitution was practiced, involving sex acts performed by temple priestess, priestesses and prostitutes as part of religious rituals. I know some of you are like, oh my God, she said sex a lot. <laughs> I know. So these acts were seen as ways to please God and see, please, not God. Let me back up. 
to please the gods, little g, and seek their favor. Paul finds out that this sort of behavior is seeping into the church. And he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Yep, I said it. (laughs) You heard it. But let's talk about it. My gut and my fear, I'm just going to be honest, was to skip this. I have 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians that could preach all night long. But it felt disingenuous. It didn't feel honest to skip over it, to just ignore it, to not talk about it. See, refuge is a deep church, and this is a passage that we as teachers and leaders have spent time deep diving, deconstructing, reconstructing, renovating, and rebuilding on the foundation of Jesus Christ. To read this scripture and to take it at face value and say, it's right there in black and white, my personal opinion is that's shallow, and our aim is not to stay in the shallow end. We are an affirming church, not because we want to throw out the cross, not because we want to live how we want to live, not because we're trying to justify ourselves. We are affirming because we go deep, deeper than a lot of people are willing to go. Part of this is found in the language, and I want to emphasize that this is a piece of a bigger puzzle. It is a piece of a bigger process. My hope is not to start debates or arguments and disagreements that would divide us, but to give you a peek and some of the tools that you can use to deconstruct and rebuild and renovate your faith or give you some tools to even begin to build your faith on the foundation of Jesus Christ. Language is a piece of the puzzle here. Do you know what language Paul wrote this letter in? No, cool. I will tell you. Don't worry. I will tell you. It was Greek. And not just Greek, but ancient Greek. So part of this is going back to the original language. When you study texts in ancient language like this, you also have to think about how they wrote. We're calling this emails from Paul. And for the most part, emails can be endless. If you've gotten an email from Brian, you know that to be true. (laughs) with his little slashes. (laughs) Even my message is 14 pages, but that's because I use a bigger font because my eyes are going bad and I don't want to admit that I'm almost 35. But when Paul wrote this letter, he had limited resources, limited ink, limited paper, limited space. So context clues are massively important, not just to us, but to the original readers. Because there was limited space, they had to take everything on that paper and put it in context of what's being discussed. So since we're talking language, let's go back to to the King James Version, the Holy Word. 
And this is what it says. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor, nor extortion. Whew, I don't know how King James talked like this. This is tough. None of them shall inherit the kingdom of God. The King James Version uses the English word effeminate, which translates from the Greek word malakoi. And this Greek word malakoi translates to soft. And malakoi was a widely used term in other ancient writings, not just scripture, but ancient writings that were written throughout the course of the first century. It translates to soft, and it's used to describe a lack of self-control, weakness, cowardice, and laziness. Most uses of this term had nothing to do with sexual behavior or sexual conduct. But when it was used in a sexual context, it was most frequently used to describe the lack of self-control that men had with their lust or love for women. A lack of self-control, a fruit of the spirit that stems from love. So when somebody exhibited the self-control that, the, the lack of self-control that Malachi speaks of, they are lacking the love of Jesus somewhere. New Testament Bible scholar Dale Martin says the only reliable way to define a word is to analyze its uses in as many different contexts as possible. We've done that with Malakoi. We've seen it in use. We've gotten context from where it's used. So there's another term in this passage that's often used to condemn same-sex relationships, and it's arsenikoitai. And this term is trickier because it's not used as often in Greek texts. It can be traced back to Leviticus 20.13, which is another passage used to condemn same-sex relationships. But even then, Leviticus is written in Hebrew. So our Senekoitai is a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that does not translate to homosexuality. You following me so far? Super confusing stuff, I know. However, when our Senekoitai is used... It's typically within a list of vices and transgression. And when used in that context and in the, in the places it's been used before, it indicates exploitation. This leads some scholars to believe and suggest that our Senecoitai might refer to specific forms of sexual exploitation in the way that Paul uses it. They argue that the term reflects Paul's concerns with exploitative and abusive sexual practices rather than consensual same-sex relationship. Our Senecoitai and verses like this in the Bible, they continue to be a matter of debate. But there is no definite consensus on the exact meaning of our Senecoitai because it occurs in such a limited number of ancient Greek texts, it makes it challenging to really determine its precise meaning. 
With that being said, when we revisit verses 9 and 10, framing it not within gender or sexuality, but in terms of exploitation, we see a list of vices and transgressions and sins that exploit and hurt others, that exploit and hurt ourselves, that harm us, that harms others, that goes against the love of Jesus and it negates his sacrifice that he made for all people. It all comes back to Jesus. He said, some of you were once like that. Some of you were once greedy and selfish and you behaved, uh, you exploited people, but you have been cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. As believers, we must act with self-control. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. It comes back to Jesus and the high price he paid and his love that he demonstrated on the cross. Paul continues, he says, now regarding your question about food that has been offered to idols, we get another hint of why he's writing this letter because they're asking, they want to know. And this is another conflict within the church. And he says, yes, we know that we all have knowledge about this issue, but while knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that strengthens the church. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know anything. But the person who loves God is the one whom God recognizes. So what about eating meat offered to idols? Paul brings attention to the Corinthians' knowledge causing stumbling blocks for people who are weaker in the faith. Some believe eating meat offered to idols was sinful and damaging to the soul. But under the new covenant of, um, of Jesus' resurrection, some did not believe that. Believers felt that they knew with certainty, but I, we don't know anything with certainty. The, in fact, thinking I had to know everything with certainty and absolute, it perpetuated my faith crisis. And I can be wrong about a lot of things. Ask my fiance. <laughs> but it's not my knowledge or my ability to be right because I have a degree in theology that makes refuge a safe place. It is love. Paul advises Corinthians to be mindful of their actions because their liberty, their freedom in Jesus could lead others to sin. Love requires consideration for the spiritual well-being of others. Paul says this, so if, I eat, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. It's a bold statement. <laughs> For I don't want to cause another believer to sin. And I love what he says that is that for him, because he says that because for him, it wasn't about the law. For him, it wasn't about the meat. For him, it wasn't about his self-indulgence or, or, his, or his needs being met. It was about other people. It was about loving people. And this is what Paul says about love. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but I didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even if I sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 14, 1, let love be your highest goal. Paul includes this section of 1 Corinthians because he's addressing the various issues and conflicts within the Corinthian church. I encourage you to read all the chapters in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Take your time with it. I know scripture can feel overwhelming, but if you just sit with it and take your time, read it a couple times through, move through it. But it seems as though when we get to chapter, chapter 13, that the Corinthians are emphasizing special gifts and talents and ability as more important. And this is causing a division and lack of love amongst the believers. Paul seeks to correct this by emphasizing that without love, without loving your neighbor, it is all meaningless. My knowledge, my theology degree, my, everything that I can do is meaningless if I do not love my neighbor. Love calls us to cultivate healthy and loving relationships with one another. It encourages us to treat one another with kindness, patience, and respect. It inspires us to view others through the lens of compassion and value their worth and see their dignity as a human being, as a fellow image bearer of Jesus Christ. Love goes beyond the walls of this church into our engagement with the world. It challenges us to be agents of positive change, working towards justice, equality, and reconciliation. Love compels us to stand against injustice, to advocate for the marginalized, and to extend compassion and generosity to those in need. To love your neighbor means to stand with them when the world is standing against them. And it all comes back to Christ. Paul wraps up his letter, starts to wrap up his letter in, in chapter 15, where he says, now let me remind you of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you never really believed it in the first place. Here we get to the biggest issue that Paul has with the Corinthian church. 
underneath all the disunity, all underneath all the bickering about what to eat, what not to eat, all of that, the underlying problem is that they are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, I pass on to you what was most important. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as scriptures said. To deny the resurrection would have major implications. Denying the resurrection undermines the central hope of the Christian faith. If there's no resurrection, then there's no transformative power of Jesus Christ. There's no victory over death. Without the resurrection, we don't have hope. We don't have assurance that what we're doing is going to mean something. Without the resurrection, we have weak ethics, weak commitment. We don't have the willingness and the strength to endure persecution and hardship. Denying the resurrection would have had an adverse impact on the community and fellowship of Corinth. Denying the resurrection further caused division and tensions. It challenged their unity, their shared beliefs, and their understanding of what it meant to be part of the body of Christ. The underlining theme, if I could have given this message a title night tonight, is that it all comes back to Jesus. The foundation of Jesus. Refuge is a safe place to disagree with one another. Refuge is a safe place to have hard conversations. But I promise you that everything that I believe, everything that I've deconstructed and reconstructed has been built on the foundation of Jesus. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And just as they play and as we move into a time of worship, I just want us to reflect on the last couple of things I talked about, 1 Corinthians 13 and what love is and how we see that love exemplified through Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death and his resurrection. Jesus, I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. I'm so thankful that you died so that I may live. That you take me just as I am. You take me just as you found me. And you use me. Father, I pray that you would continue to make refuge a safe place for people to rebuild their faith on the foundation of you. We love you and we thank you and we invite you to just come and move and speak to our hearts as we reflect on these truths tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.